and welcome to the Valiant Central Podcast. This episode is freaking awesome. Joining Travis and I tonight is the one and only Joshua Dysart. Of course, we're going to talk about the life and times of Toya Harada. Of course, we're going to talk about his Harbinger run. But man, we have so much to discuss because Josh is one of the brightest people that I've ever had a chance to talk to, and for sure in comics. So I'm not going to do an introduction. That's all you're going to get. Go enjoy the interview. I'll be back at the end. Thanks for listening. Do an audio check on me. How am I sounding? You sound everything- You sound good. That sounds good. Sexy. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Rolled in hard. I'm wearing my assless chaps and I'm ready to go. Uh, oh, see, I'm wearing my banana hammock. <laughs> nice. With like, it's like an elephant with a little trunk. You, you know it. <laughs> you know it. Yes. Uh, thanks for coming on, Josh. That's awesome. Dude, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. I think, uh, I think, I talked to you, God, it's been forever. It was probably like before even Imperium. Nice. It's, it's been years. Um, I think, uh, I think actually I had Amy on for that, uh, recording. Yes. I love to talk to Amy. She's great. Amy's fantastic. Yeah. Amy and Dan both are great. Absolutely. So, uh, how you been? I'm good, man. I've yeah? been really good. Yeah. I was just in, uh, France. My, uh, the stuff is really doing pretty well in France, so this is my third time in the last two years to do a tour of France. No kidding. Uh, yeah, so it's pretty awesome. Dude, yeah. I heard the, the comic scene in France is nuts. It is, man. It's a scary market. I've been approached by more than one publisher to publish in French first, but, um, uh, you know, I, I – I mean, possibly it's like 5,000 trades drop a year or something. It's like really crazy. Um, so I, I can't imagine how they, the, when you go into these big Bande Sine stores, these like big Franco Belgium, uh, for lack of a better term, comic book stores, they're really nice and they're huge and they often have bars in them and stuff. It's really pretty awesome. But, um, at the same time, they are turning books over on those shelves so fast. And if you don't have name recognition or something, it's like, it can be really, really devastating. And I hear, you know, I see a lot of artists working for very, very, very cheap because the, the industry is in such a glut right now. Um, hmm. yeah. And as American comics, uh, start to become, you know, start to gain a presence, in the French market, it only uh, it only increases the glut, obviously. So um, it's a pretty crazy marketplace. I mean, it's tough for you know it's tough for uh, sequential art all over the world, except for perhaps manga and maybe some South Korean um, markets. But otherwise, it's a it's hard going for the industry right now. So when when the books are published in France, is it just a direct translation? Because uh, I mean, yes. I've I've read some French books, and the comics there that are created there seem very different from what we create here. Right? Yeah, exactly. So the Bandesine is absolutely um, a different, you know, it's a, a different type of of um, sequential art storytelling in the same way that manga is like a different type than comics. So. Um, but but yeah, but American comics are gaining a foothold. I mean, probably because of uh, the, the Marvel movies and their success and everything. But so our stuff, the Valiant stuff, has really 
I think resonated pretty well there. And I have, I feel really welcome in France the last few tours I've done. Uh, and I think it's because I was, I grew up reading European comics, mostly British comics, but some other European comics as well. And, um, and so I have a lot of that sensibility in my work. And so I think that it's a really interesting combination of, um, politics, social awareness, and then just straight up, you know, for lack of a better term, superhero, like throwdown. Um, so I, th I think that might be why we're gaining a little bit more of a foothold than say, you know, a normal indie superhero comic universe would in the French market. But as far as format, page count, panels per page, uh, those sorts of, of formal, Issues are very, very different between Bondesine and comics. Yeah, I are we recording? Yeah, are we do, do. We're we're always it. recording. We're I always recording. Uh, I love it. That's <laughs> I uh, I was curious because uh, you know, like, there's a, a big hip hop scene, for example, in France, right? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. But Fr French hip hop is so different than yeah. than American hip hop. Um, I think in some ways it's MC like Solar. <laughs> yeah, they have the solar. Um, it's, uh, it, in some ways, like reminiscent of like early hip hop here, where you mm -hmm. do have that, like, you, like the real talk. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. Um, social and, consciousness. Yeah, the social consciousness. And I wonder if that's like inherently a French thing. Uh, and maybe Americans are just too stupid. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, uh, geographically, France is, you know, it's close to North Africa. It's um, it's definitely felt the impact of uh, the migration issues that have occurred over the this last decade mm -hmm. um, out of out of the Middle East and uh, out of uh, um, like uh, South Asia. So it's it's globally positioned in a way that the United States is not, and that certainly gives it a a global perspective as a people's, um, especially and and also. Anyway, so you were in France. That's what we were talking about. You were in France. Oh yeah, yeah, that was my most recent little trip. Yeah, exactly. For Bliss, uh, which is the the French publisher of the Valiant um, stuff, and then they also are the only publisher in the world to have published a hard copy of the work that I did with the United Nations World Food Program, the Living Level Three books. So there's a really nice, big, beautiful hardback in French that has all of my Living Level Three stories, and then also my co-creator who is the head of all media for the World Food Program, United Nations. He also did a story uh, for it, and it's a big, beautiful book. So I, I um, that was one of my tours of France was to promote that book. And I'd love to see it in English, but, um, you know, I don't know. I guess it's too much of a bummer or something. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Well, going uh, back to that point, maybe Americans just aren't smart enough to buy it. Right. Well, that brings us to where we were at when we got cut off, which is just I think there's geographically and historically um, a, a, just France is a little bit more cognitively tethered to the world, you know, than we, we tend to be here in the States. So I think my work speaks a little bit to the French market in that way. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't know that they had uh, they had collected it. Can can we order that from Bliss? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure they'll, they, I'm sure that you can, you can always contact, uh, Floren or, you know, the Bliss Comics people, uh, via social media. Um, you'll see me talking to them all the time, hanging out with them on social. And I'm sure that they could get you some kind of, yeah, I mean, and I don't know if you've seen those Valiant editions in French, but they are stunning. They are 
beautiful. Yeah, I have a uh, I have Valley Comics from almost every country they publish in. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, have you seen the Harbinger Bible? Have you seen that? Like the entire Harbinger run? No. In the hardback, it's it's stupid. I don't know how you could possibly read it. It's like, <laughs> but it's gorgeous. It's really beautiful. Is that yeah. by Bliss? Yeah, yeah. No All kidding. Yeah. I will track this down. Uh, the yeah. hardest one that I had uh, an issue getting was a Japanese Quantum and Woody. Awesome. Uh, it took me like two years to get that book, but uh, I finally got one. And then it took like six months to ship here. So uh, it was it was cool when it actually showed up because I had totally forgotten about it. Uh huh. How was the lettering in that? I'm so fascinated. You know, I did for early in my career, I did some work for Tokyo Pop where I took a book called uh, Aurora and the Demon, a Japanese manga, and I took the straight translation. I don't speak or read Japanese, but I took the straight Japanese to English translation, and then I kind of turned it into a readable thing and worked out where the balloons went, basically kind of did a, a, an adaptation of the straight translation to make it a, a more readable book. And it was a really interesting exercise, and it actually, I think, is one of the times that I learned a great deal about the medium and exactly how comics work individually to themselves. But I also remember that uh, because the the written you know, the, the kanji or the Japanese written language uh, takes up more space than the English right. written language. So lettering, uh, so there was always these huge balloons <laughs> with very little dialogue. <laughs> in them. Um, so I'm wondering how it goes the opposite way, how they struggle with, are they, or if they completely re-letter it with new balloons and everything. Uh, there was, so there it turned was into like an Alan Moore script or something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All text. Uh, don't don't talk bad about Ellen Moore. That's right. Oh no, nothing but respect. Okay, House good. of Moore, baby. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll I'll get it out of my uh, closet and I'll shoot some pictures and send them over to you so you can see it. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Uh, the the cover is fantastic though. The, the cover is like total like manga craziness. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, who who sent that to me? I think uh, Adam. Uh, he's uh, he's an American guy, but he lives in Japan. Uh, I think he's been there like oh, yeah, 10 or 10 years. Uh, yeah, he, he's Valiant. awesome. Yeah, yeah, from Talking Valiant. And uh, he uh, he's the one that tracked down a copy for me. Uh, but some of those books are hard to get, man. Um, like I was trying to get uh, the editions from Brazil uh, mm. from one of the editors, and and that took forever to get as well. Uh, and mm. I don't know if like that was like a thing with him having an issue getting them out or what, because uh, I know they were having some some publishing issues. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think they had switched their format from just like a single issue to doing like similar to a trade paperback, uh, but it was like a flip book trade paperback. Yes. So yeah, I've seen those. I was, uh, I, I went to Brazil to do a signing for that publisher and uh, I remember seeing those flip books. Yeah. They were pretty interesting. Yeah. They're cool. Yeah, they are cool. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but they do have like random stuff together. Like it'd be, uh, X of Man of War one on one side and Shadow Man one on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if the, maybe that was, I, I don't know if that was an issue. I have no idea, but it seems yeah. like you'd want to have like similar theme books together. You know what I mean? Like I understand trying to bring in, uh, people to read different kinds of things. Uh, but it seems like maybe they would have sold better that way. Mm, um, yeah. the, the Brazil market does seem, really different from other things um you know like the the british market and and the australian market i would say are fairly similar to what we have 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Australia is huge with American comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine that actually just self-published a book, uh, I think two years ago, and is getting ready to do uh, volume two. And like, he tells me stories about conventions and stuff there. And I'm like, dude, you could just like, you might as well be here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where it seems like in, in other places, it, it is very much very different. Uh, and I'm sure that some of the, a lot of that is cultural at least. Yeah. I don't really know. Yeah, I I only know the markets that I've spent a lot of time in. As a kid, I read a lot of British uh, comic books. Um, I had, a, you know, one of the very first comic book stores or that first wave of stores um, when I was young in the late 70s uh, was in my hometown of Corpus Christi. And I, um, Judge Garza owned it. And uh, he was an actual judge. <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> and he started a comic book shop, and um, you know that was a huge. I mean, it, it was a huge thing for me when he opened that shop in our town. That's when I first got introduced to role playing games and all that stuff. Um, but uh, he he actually stocked 2000 AD at that time, which in this That's tiny little, yeah, exactly. So in that tiny little town in Texas, I was getting British comics in a in a way that period of comics was more internationally open uh than it is today um in a very yeah it was a pretty interesting time mm. uh, you know and then and we arced into the mid 80s which is i mean arguably probably the, the the most impressive time for uh english language comic books in you know probably since its inception sure i i just found the the harbinger book you were talking about yes it, it's 928 pages Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, and it's only it's, 50 pounds. <laughs> oh, to very only thin the, pages. Monetary unit is 50, only 50 pounds. Not yes. the weight. Not yes. The, yes, yes, correct, yes. correct. <laughs> oh, oh, not pounds, it'd be euro, I guess. Yeah, euro, yeah. Uh, 50, I mean, 50 euro, what's that, like 75 bucks? Now I think it's closer to on par now. Oh, yeah? I mean, I have to look, but yeah, I think... Uh, I think the euro has dropped a little bit, but it's that's, been a while. That's a steal for uh, 928 pages, dude. It's, a, it's. I mean, I don't know what shipping is going to be like on that beast, but <laughs> pretty dope book. Yeah, that's dope. Um, Did Judge Garza drive a uh, peacekeeper or a lawkeeper? I, I don't. A, I don't know what a peacekeeper is, and B, I'm not sure what he drove. What is <laughs> like it? The, I'm talking about the Judge Dread motorcycle. Oh, <laughs> the peacekeeper. I'm so sorry. It's a lockkeeper, right? Or lock, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, no. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> no, he didn't. I don't know what he did. I am the one. Yeah. Judge Garza, man, he used to, you know, you couldn't, if you were cutting school, you couldn't go into the store because he would, he would, because he was the law. You had to be, you couldn't, all you wanted <laughs> was go hang out at the comic book store and you couldn't do it. I think uh, I think there's something about Texas judges that uh, <laughs> they have their fingers in everything. Because I lived in Tyler for a little while, and it seemed like it was the same thing. Like the judge had a restaurant and this and the other, uh, and of course, you know, he was getting his pockets full because that's the uh, the the tech patent capital of the world. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh yeah. right, where they do all those like dodgy yeah tech the, patent the patent trolls lawsuits. yeah yeah fascinating yeah. I mean, I, I believe, and you know, I was just a kid, but I believe Garza, Judge Garza, was a good dude. Uh, I think he was on the up and up. He really believed in us. And when um, 
when I was told by my teachers at school that I could no longer run my Dungeons and Dragons campaign for all the students, he he basically kind of like helped me prep a legal defense uh, to go in and talk to the talk to the you know the principal and uh, and explain the game and everything. And that was like my first real moment of uh, political activism was twelve year old Josh requesting an audience with the principal to explain how Dungeons and Dragons worked. <laughs> and, he, and so that they would see, cause you know, this was the middle of the role-playing game scare of um, oh, yeah. the early eighties. And uh, it was a really, really, really strange time for those of us who were in role-playing games and, and were part of the Bible belt. And so we, you know, so he really sat me down and, and explained to me how I could, how I could, talk to the grown-ups about what this game meant to us kids and how it actually helped us helped us with statistics with math with our imagination uh social skills so uh and i did it i like uh we got we got the ban against role-playing games overturned in our school no so yeah that was all judge garza man he, he basically taught me the the way and the path of activism <laughs> so i'm pretty fond of the guy personally yeah. <laughs> it sounds like footloose yeah, it is. It's like Footloose, but we're not in nearly as good shape as Kevin Bacon, and uh, and and you know, dancing's more fun than role playing games. D- but dice loose, yes, dice right, loose. Exactly. Do you feel like uh, I've never played D anD have I've been saying for months now that I wanted to, to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I when I was growing up, I didn't know anybody that played it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I could never get into it because I mean I I guess maybe you could do a campaign by yourself, but I, I doubt it. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you feel like D and D has impacted like your comic writing? I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you know, well, a, a few things. First of all, uh, there are systems you can take yourself on. Uh, like solo adventures. Um, there are systems for that, not necessarily quite in Dungeons and Dragons. Secondly, as a kid, um, I was really alive during the, the, the first role playing game boom. We're sort of in the middle of a new role playing game boom now, but so I, I very, you know, I started with Dungeons and Dragons, but by the early eighties, I was playing all kinds of systems and D and D was really, D and D is really the Coca-Cola of role playing games. You know what I mean? Like you can, if you want to, or like the Coors Light or whatever role playing games, if you, um, they've done a lot to, to make it, you know, diverse and interesting, but in my day, there was a lot of really fascinating systems happening and all kinds of new ways to play them. And I was always the game master. I was the game master in my neighborhood. I was the game master at my school. Uh, and, and I often had multiple games happening in several dis- different systems at the same time. And I, I, I don't really come from a well-off uh, family. You know, we're like lower middle class. So and my mom's a single mom and I wasn't able to buy all the modules and all the things that really kind of direct you through. So I basically spent all my free time, uh, until I hit puberty and, or late puberty and, and was like desperate to meet girls. But until then I, I spent all my free time building adventures for people. And so that included world building. Um, but also very importantly, it included understanding the kind of characters the people wanted to play and the kinds of things they wanted to do. And so uh, I think nothing creatively empowered me as much as, as running 
uh, role-playing game systems and not just D&D, you know, I mean, we did that. I mean, it's, if I started a list of the game systems we played, it'd, it'd be crazy. But, um, uh, but that was a huge part of me becoming creatively empowered, learning how to run a story. And I think now in retrospect, I also believe is where I got into this sort of uh, character first mode of storytelling, because um, when you're running a, uh, a game, your characters in your story are actual people that need to be serviced right. to have fun. They're your, your players and you have to service them. And so if your player really, really wants his character to be an amazing guitarist, you have to find a way for that character to do something profound and substantial with the guitar. So, <laughs> so you, know, you really learn how, how, you know, you're treating your characters way more like people than you are treating them like, uh, plot machinations or plot cogs, which, you know, I still see a lot of storytellers treat characters like they're just there to sort of advance plot or, or the plot is a jungle gym for the character to kind of crawl around on top of. And, um, but I think role playing games really taught me how to personify a character and also how to place that character and their needs, um, like before plot before story and to think on my feet like so when the plot falls apart because the character wants to do something really way more cool <laughs> not to keep them on rails but to act fast you know and 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 think of new fun stuff right off the cuff and make sure that it's character first all the time and i do think that role-playing games helped me with all that and world building too sure i, I wonder yeah. i wonder if if part of the difference is uh, in comics for example um whether a, a publisher is more leaning towards a writer first story or an artist first story. Um, and I think it's kind of gone back and forth a little bit. I, I couldn't really tell you where we're at now. Uh, mm-hmm. but it seems like if you, if you do a writer first, um, a lot of times you, you will get character centric stories like what you do. Uh, mm-hmm. whereas if you put the artist first, you end up getting more plot things because you can do, I mean, you can do this with character centric stories, but uh, more like bombastic scenery because mm-hmm. um, you, you want to draw people in and show off the art. You know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, and I, I do wonder if some of that changes. I mean, obviously it changes, but like, you know, starting with really in the big time with like early nineties and image, uh, mm-hmm. when, when you had this move towards, uh, the, the mm, artist yeah. writing the story. Um, mm. It seems like at that point you lose that uh, that character first because you don't really have somebody that is, I guess, well versed in that side of the craft. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, and, and you kind of hit upon it too, also in that what is the motivator you know these these early 90 guys 90s guys they were young and um they really really liked to draw like <laughs> splash pages and shit mm-hmm. and that just you know that eats a lot of storytelling real estate it looks beautiful um in many cases not always in the case of those early 90s comics but for the most part and um and so i i think ultimately you're right. The industry has swung back and forth, but I do believe there's been a strong trend since the British invasion uh, in the States um, towards writer first. And I think that that and I do believe that has been sort of to a detriment of the medium. And it's kind of our jobs 
writers and artists to really collaborate together and really think about a way to make sure we're not losing what's formally important about the about the the medium um and i do believe that is the art first so uh you know i'm always very cognizant about what is my artist's strengths what do they want to draw how are we going to get through this thing where can i find room for the character work without you know and still deliver like uh what is expected of a functioning comic book which is big images um you know some really nice set pieces maybe a, a clever piece of action maybe one big plot drop and it, can i do all that and not sacrifice character so that that's just that's the art of it but i definitely see most of the times you know comics will go one way or the other they'll either be really opulently visually beautiful or they'll be very intricately narratively uh constructed um but it, you know it's hard and I fail at it all the time, but it's it's hard to do both at the same time. I like how humble you are, Josh. <laughs> I think every Valiant fan knows you are a, a master of your craft. <laughs> uh, well, thanks. I, I don't they think maybe the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, but, but but they do say it. Yeah, they good. do say it. Keep you saying know. it. If uh, yeah, if, some, if something comes out with a character that you've worked on, everyone's always like, "Oh, well, it's good, but it's no dice art." No right? dice art. <laughs> okay, but like, I feel like you, Josh, addressed this kind of in passing on the uh, the VCR Zero episode. I think where like like not in so many words, but the idea that maybe like you know the idea that kind of you always like think you're a fraud or something yes. or, or, like, yeah. or like like that you question too. yourself and is this good yeah. and like that that's a mark of hyper intelligence and intellectualism whereas the people who are not intelligent like they are the ones who are like i am the fucking best you know <laughs> well First i mean i think- knocked it out of the park <laughs> didn't even need to spell check it yeah I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a sign of intellect, but I do think those people are going to have a harder time growing. Like I do think that if I, you know, some of this is, is an active pursuit to get better and better at my craft. And if I can, if, you know, if I just sort of like lean back and, and think that, uh, that what I, you know, if I lean back and I listen to everyone who says all these nice things about me, then I, uh, that's that there's no path towards more growth in that right. direction. So, so it's better to just, you know, as long as you're not, um, you know, you have to be careful not to, uh, not to keep like to freeze yourself up. You have to still be productive. Like you can, you can have so much self doubt that you don't produce. And, uh, that's, that's, I've experienced that. I've frozen up. I've locked up before. I think writer's block is really nothing but fear of failure and 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 that sort of self-doubt that locks you up. So I've definitely experienced that. I've wrestled with it in my time. And I think part of it is because maybe I'm so hard on myself that there have been times when I've gotten – especially when I'm starting a new thing. Uh, whenever I'm starting a brand new thing, I've never been on it before. I'm really hard on every creative choice I make, and that I would not recommend. That is definitely a way to drive yourself absolutely fucking crazy. But if you can find the right balance between questioning your creative choices uh, – 
you know, getting your shit done in a timely way so that you're being professional about it and getting it in and, um, and, and still feeling relatively proud with the work. I think that's the path, you know, for growth, for continued growth. You know, another guy that does that same thing is, uh, Louis LaRosa. Oh man, he tears himself up and he is a genius. He is. He <laughs> yeah. is. Uh, I, I've, I mean, he's trying something for you, right, Josh? Wait, can you talk about uh, that? I can't really, I can't really discuss anything <laughs> that is happening except that everyone has a really bad idea. <laughs> I like it. Um, what was that? It's like somebody's chicken dinner ready. <laughs> That's my uh, wise moment, Bill. Oh, nice! Oh, I love it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I met Lewis a couple times because he lives. Uh, he's in Atlanta, right? Um, so he comes to the cons here in uh, in South Carolina. And uh, dude, the first night, the first time I met him, he was like a kid in a candy store. Mm-hmm. And he's got like all these big name creators at the con, just like stopping by his booth and watching him draw, um, yeah. and like telling him how amazing he is. And he's just like in the corner hiding because he doesn't want anybody to see in case he messes up. Yeah. And uh, and I think over over a couple of years of him working in comics, uh, some of that kind of went away, but obviously not entirely, right? Um, and, and I think part of it is. If you you mentioned it, wanting to be better at your craft, if you can recognize that you can always be better, you you can use that doubt to kind of improve yourself. Yes. Whereas guys that maybe need to prove to other people how good they are uh, are a little more bombastious about it because they have to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, uh, I mean, in, ultimately, ego is is a, a manifestation of insecurity, right? So you, when when somebody has an unhealthy ego in in the direction of over celebrating themselves, um, then that's that person is probably at an existential, foundational substrate, just utterly terrified, just white knuckling it, you know, uh, and. Um, that's that's kind of what I see when somebody walks around thinking that they're the shit. I see a, a I see a child, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. a terrified child. Now, um, but Lewis though, and maybe I haven't actually gotten to speak and see Lewis in proximal space in a really long time, and I, I really love Lewis. Um, but you know, I've seen I've definitely seen Lewis tear himself down too much, like way you know his, his um n- not not give himself the the credit that he needs to to keep drawing to push forward so i love the guy he's a genius he's a very very kind person i think that's another another thing that um humility is a product of kindness of trying to to abdicate power to others to you know and i i find in him a true gentility and kindness and so i don't want him I don't want him to to be hard on himself (laughs) yeah i want him to love himself yeah which i'm sure you know I hope he does. He, he's definitely very genuine, and I can definitely appreciate that. Yeah, man. He's a super authentic person. You know, I have to say, like, we really – I mean, we really lucked out. Uh, although comics in general is filled with wonderful people, mostly because there's very little money in it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, just a kind, authentic, wonderful person. And comics is filled with great people like that, man. It's a, it's a really – it's a good culture for the most part. For the most part. Yes. For yeah, the most. I think uh, I think there's a, a vocal minority that kind of ruins it for some folks, but 
there has emerged, uh, you know, in the readership more than in the creators, but of course, the, there are a few, yes, a few uh, standard bearers for this type of readership. But there has there there has emerged a toxicity. But I I think that it's that's the last gasp of a, a kind of older uh, way of of uh, you know the, look this generate. I mean, it's you know it's. It's no, uh, you know, it's not a hidden secret that this was like a, a white boys club for a very long time. Um, even uh, for quite some time, we were supported by an extremely diverse readership. We remained a white boys club. So um, I think that it's only natural and right and proper that the medium itself, uh, the creators of the medium begin to look like you know, the, their diverse readership. And, and so it's also only natural that as that happens, that, uh, you're going to get a bunch of regressive assholes freaking the fuck out. <laughs> so, so well, dude, I, I heard somebody saying that like the idea that like the alt-right wasn't even political, that it was what they called like metapolitics. Yes, yes, yes. Basically yeah, yes. the idea that you take something that is important to people like film or comics and you graft your whatever you want to call it like politics onto it so it becomes a vehicle for basically i don't know let's call it a hate agenda yes and and you're selling it with video games comic yes yeah so steve bannon i believe um maybe it didn't start with him but steve bannon had this political theory that uh politics is downstream of culture and culture is downstream of religion so that this idea that if you can so bannon felt and in his ilk and the sort of architects of this alt-right rhetoric and moment that we're in felt that if you could change culture that is actually a very quick way to change politics Mm -hmm. so um you know that i think it's all it is you know it is all part of this um what started as kind of a premeditative way to um to cause these cultural battles these like these you know the culture wars quote unquote so that they could impact uh the politics and and they could get their agenda, which um, seems to be a, a kind of white supremacist uh, hawk, you know, hawkish, <clears throat> weird combination of hawkish and isolationism uh, and like free trade agenda out there. So, I mean, it's quite clever on the part of the architects, um, but the, the foot soldiers that mindlessly sort of react um, to it, or it's it's all fascinating. But I, I maintain, and and I hope it's true that um, that you know this is um, there's a saying: uh, nothing kicks up dust like a horse with its ass on fire. And I feel like that's you know that's uh, that's what we, that's what we see when we see this this sort of flare up of of white supremacy, uh, misogyny, and in like targeted harassment. Both in our in our medium, you know, in our in our our culture, in our social culture, uh, but also politically, and you know, in every other every other aspect of American life right now, global life, really. Yeah. Have you seen like Netanyahu 
uh, being investigated, he's, his language is exactly the same as Trump's language to, to you know, in response to his current uh, investigation in Israel. He's like, it's a coup. They're trying to overthrow a democratically elected leader. It's the deep state. Like the language is exactly the same. Um, you know, it's it's some something's happening globally. A kind of a right word flex in the moment I, uh, and it's happening in comics too I, I was listening to a podcast recently uh, about when this started in Russia um, I think it yes. was like right before Putin came on board or maybe as he was coming up um, there was a guy that basically devised all this propaganda uh, to kind of shape culture in order for them to like move forward past like czarist Russia and communist Russia mm-hmm. uh, to this like new golden age. Um, cause you know, like in, in some respects, there's this like feeling in Russia, um, that they're like the third Rome, right? Like the new empire. Um, mm-hmm. because, uh, they, they see like their church as like a, the natural progression from the Roman church to, uh, you know, the, the church in Constantinople to, uh, when, when that fell, they, the church moved to, to Russia. Um, mm-hmm. and so they feel like this sense of, uh, entitlement and empowerment in some way. Uh, but there's no conscientious way for the society to move to that point. And, and this guy, like, basically created the art of playing both sides. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, uh, the, the Russian group that, uh, forces op- opposing groups to meet in a similar place, right? Like a group mm-hmm. of blacks and a group of KKK members to meet on like opposite corners of a street. Um, and, and this guy started doing all this in Russia and in some ways kind of like farcical in some way. Um, like there was a story about a bunch of like people dressed as Chewbacca running for government in Russia. Because um, mm-hmm. it was kind of a game, uh, but over time, like people get used to this kind of thing, and they see this distortion as kind of an actual reality, and they feel like they mm. they need to keep the lie moving forward in order to somehow keep this false identity that they've created uh, in their mind. And I think we see a lot of that nowadays. Mm-hmm. I think. Are you talking about Adam Curtis, the are you, the documentarian who did hypernormalization? And it might have been, that, yeah, 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 yeah. He's really fascinating. Uh, he explores this stuff a lot. I, I find him amazing. Yeah, man. There's this, and it's also just this uh, very successful way to cast, um, to to like to make us less concerned, or you know, like just make us more rigid to being emotionally open to an honest political process by by having for instance multiple chewbacca's run for mayor you're just you're just making the whole thing absurd and you're you're desensitizing the public to to it you know um so that's where we're at now where they've really tried to i mean i i would say the architects of it and and then uh have have intentionally tried to create a kind of uh, apathy, you know, a, a kind, a kind in, in sort of an intellectual uh, apathy towards towards everything. And then and that's what we see coming out of 4chan and 8chan. We see, uh, uh, you know, we see a culture that rewards themselves f- for their ability to not care. Right. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And so this is the, yeah, this is 
the trend that we're, but it's a, also, a, it's a very modern societal trend. It's a very, uh, interesting place existentially for us to be as a species at this moment when, when, um, you know, the, when the planet f- feels like it's, it's acting out against us and, and everything, uh, where, you know, apathy is a very normal kind of psychological way to, to address the modern condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's why they're being incredibly successful right now. And, and we're having culture clashes, you know, this kind of like, uh, um, glo- globalism mixed with climate change is, is, is impacting, uh, you know, is really breaking down the final dividing cultural walls that we had between uh, regions of the planet you know and and there's ma- and now we're having mass human migration like the the largest human migration we've had since before world war ii so all these things are are, are threatening people who felt comfortable with the status quo um yeah and it's being taken advantage of so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Thomas Pynchon's work at all. Uh, he, yeah, he's one I of my am. favorite writers of all time. Yes. Uh, and he, he's got a great quote that I always remember. It's, uh, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about answers. And, yes, and that yes. seems a lot like what we have just in general, in society, not just politics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 100%. Absolutely. It's, it's crazy. Maybe yeah. maybe he's uh, doing some chaos magic like uh, Grant Morrison and Alan Moore. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, anyways, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, life and, and death of Toya Harada, if, if we could. I love it. Just a shift. Uh, I, I'm curious. I, I reread it yesterday uh, in preparation and uh, blown away even more the second time. But I'm curious, ah, cool. when, when, when you picked up Harbinger in, was it 2012? Um, if you had any idea that this is where your story would end up? Well, n- yes and no. Not in 2012. I mean, uh, well, and I mean, I think I was contacted in 2010. I think we developed through 2011, and I think we launched in 2012. Um, I no. I mean, at that point, you just, you, I mean, we'll just see how, you know, look, I had had two ongoing series at that point. Both had lasted about two years, and I felt like this was sort of, you know, my track record that we would just do this for a few, a year, maybe, maybe two if we're lucky. And, and then I'll go off and find something else to do. Um, but you know, we, we begin to gel as a company. Uh, I begin to have more responsibilities. We begin to bring on other writers and I, and I, and slowly it, it sort of became, um, more of a mission for me to, to get this story done. But, I, but as far as it being the life and death of Toya Harada, I, um, when we finished the first run of Harbinger, we were not yet certain that what was next for me was to tell the other story, the story of, of the quote unquote villain. And in fact, we were, and I, you know, you guys probably know, and I've mentioned it before, but we were struggling for a while to try to find common ground uh, between Warren and I as to what to do next with Harbinger, to relaunch Harbinger mm-hmm. with me continuing to write it from the point of view of, of the kids, um, uh, of the renegades. And so it wasn't until we thought, you know, we, we couldn't come to a consensus on what to do with Harbinger. So it wasn't until then we thought, well, let's 
go in a whole new direction and let's let's really explore Harada, make it a different book, a different book tonally, a different book thematically. You know, the kids are concerned with very material uh, immediate things. They want to have a good time. They want to, you know, they want to overthrow the man, but they also kind of want to party a little bit and make crack jokes and fuck about. Whereas Harada has very little patience for anything but getting the job done. So we knew it was going to be a more, a dip, more difficult book to get comedy into, a more difficult book to, but I was, intr- I was really excited about the geopolitics, how much bigger uh, the the moves become, you know, the renegades were always just trying to play against Harada, but Harada is trying to play against every government on the planet. So his moves are much bigger. Um, and so it was once we settled into that, then I knew that what became life and death of to- Toyo Harada was the ending I wanted to tell. I I did think we were going to be able to do it as the final story arc of Imperium, but that was not the case. Um, and you know, so, but yeah, it was at that kind of point. So, you know, with any project of this size in comics, it's, it, it's evolved, it evolves as it goes along. You sort of see how you're just waiting for them to give you more leash. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Now, I mean, I, I definitely see the, the continuation from what you started with Imperium, um, and it, it was nice to get a, a a good bow on it, and I'm curious where the company's going to take the character moving forward. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. It I mean, seems like you, I mean, you you have it in a place where they can go any any direction that they want. To be honest, mm-hmm. um, but Harada has become so powerful at the end of this book, um, mm-hmm. in in more ways than one, and I think that can be very challenging for. A new writer to come in and say, "Okay, now I'm going to bring Toya Harada in this direction." Uh, mm-hmm. When you have so much, we'll quote, call it baggage uh, that you've, mm-hmm. you know, stuff that you've added to his story over the years. Because if yeah. I re- if I read Harbinger One and see that Toya Harada, it's there's definitely similarities, and the the character's personality is very similar. Um, but the the journey the character has taken is way mm-hmm. beyond anything I would have expected out of those first few issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely was an evolving character, uh, which I love. You know, it's because he's in that way he's like a person. I mean, look, some of the some of the problems, and I, I will get to also your your sort of question there, but but some of the 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 differences between what we see with Harada and issue one of Harbinger versus the final issue of uh, life and death are of course simply me really being comfortable with the character at the end. And as opposed to in the beginning when you're kind of making shit up, like it takes a little while, you know, first, first issues are, are hard and they're often, you know, uh, porn sack and I both feel like a first issue should be your hardest to write and the one you hate the most years later because you you it takes a while before your characters start to actually speak to you in their own voice for a long time particularly in comics where we hit the ground running really fast and probably haven't gotten to do enough development pre-work before we've started working on scripts um they because it's a monthly grind you know so they uh they they often hit the page at the beginning just sort of shells uh, and and then you they will reveal themselves to you over time but also part of the difference between the two haradas the harada at the beginning of harbinger 1 and at the end of life and death 
uh, is an uh, I hope a natural evo- human evolution. The the renegades did change, you know, like there's so many ways in which he evolves but doesn't change, and I think that's real, and I I, I like that about the character. Um, as far as leaving him with a bunch of baggage and uh, and stuff, you know, look, it is my personal hope that they and I think there are stories to be told this way, um, but that they are you guys there? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I thought we got cut off again. There's a, Give there's me a, space, man. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Um, there's a uh, that was my deep insecurity emerging. Wait, are you there? <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. But like, uh, you know, look, I think there's ways to tell stories in which he stays hidden from the Valley universe, but very much on the stage for the reader. And uh, I think that you know, I would like for them to keep him hidden for a while because I think it's a bit of a, a lame thing if he goes underground and is believed dead and and it happens you know until the very next story arc with him in it <laughs> and then he's revealed to the world again but that's up to them to do i i i guess i hear what you're saying you know i kind of love the idea uh i mentioned this in the other podcast but when you when you walk away from a character uh i think personally it's my job to drop the mic and then walk away and sort of challenge someone to pick it up. Be like, okay, now you deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I kind of, you know, especially if it's a character I created. I did not create Toya Harada. I do have a very close personal affinity for him. But characters like Sunlight on Snow and um, Peace, you know, the the Angela Vessel, Angela Bangana, I do sort of feel like uh, an LV-99. I just sort of put them in a situation where if you want to play with my toys, you got to bring, you know, bring your A game because I stuck them in a corner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I mean, I, it's kind of a dick move, you know, it was like a dick move for poor Raffer who I love and is a really great person, but we really put the renegades in a place where it was difficult to pick up the pieces. And, um, and I and I probably did it as a dick move with Toya Harada too. But I think that a really good writer will come on board and I think there's so much potential there to write the unseen hand. The 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 you know, I think yes, it will not be easy, but um but we never shied away from difficult storytelling. You know, that's not I think I think the whole point is to is to do something fresh and unique. The point is not to be given like the easiest, you know, the your easiest out and just tell a basic story with with Harada. So um I like that it's you know I like that I fucked over the whoever comes <laughs> up. Well, I mean props to everyone else for letting you tell the story though you know what i mean yeah because this kind of story it doesn't do well in comics people people want a superhero story and it's happy at the end of the day yeah man i think that we look our sales maybe showed that that's the case certainly i don't know that we ever have been a, a really big selling book um and i think that life and death unfortunately maybe didn't do so great but um but I think it's a smart book, and I think it's character logically honest. And uh, um, yeah, man, and I just do different kinds of superheroes. I don't, I don't really trust power. So, um, so when I write people with tremendous amounts of power, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna kind of come at it from a little bit of a different angle. I think. Yeah, sure. sure. So, can, can I put two kind of like maybe seemingly basic questions, but also like. <laughs> 
that <laughs> spicy meatball questions out there? Only, only since you preambled it are you allowed now to do it. <laughs> Good, that's why I did it. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay, so question number one. Yes. Based on all of that, yeah. do you see Harada as a villain? And <laughs> did Harada win? <laughs> All right, and my my question to you, Travis, is: Did you read the book? Yeah, <laughs> I think I, I don't know if I could. Um, I do see Harada as a villain. I have in the past oscillated back and forth on this question. This is to give you just a little bit of shit. The most common question I have been asked about. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I uh, uh, I, but I do think that ultimately I can't really truck with. Her with Harada's uh he's even though he has grown more humane and more human he still doesn't quite value human life for the right reasons uh and so I I ultimately do think that his his extremely brash way of changing the world is more in the end more harmful than good it causes more conflict it causes uh you know more escalation um, so in that regard, I do, I, I, I would consider him a, a villain, but also that's such a loaded term. Like he's, you know, what's a villain? He's not pure evil. He's not. So, um, and then wait, what was the other one? Was, is he a villain? Did and he did he win? He definitely won for now. It's comics and, you know, comics are endless. Um, but, uh, I think, yeah, I think when we close the book, I think he won. He's. He's a, he's basically in control of, of the enemy organization that is the world's go-to organization for fighting. And he's in total control of it. He's complete control of Kozel. Um, he has com- all, he has all of Angela's anti, um, uh, psionic tech. So right now, the way the tech field is against, for anti-psyots, technology he he's completely without anyone being aware of it he's completely able to navigate around anti-psyotech that may change as the technology changes but um right now you know the president of the united states could have huge anti-psyot dampeners all over the white house and harada could still completely walk in undetected sit next to his bed while he sleeps and just pump uh, uh, psychic suggestions into the brain of the president of the United States and then walk out and no one will ever know he's there. So I think this is the biggest victory we've seen Harada attain in my entire run. And, and that includes covering him through the, the original Harbinger Wars when he and Rising Spirit first went at it or when he and the Vine first discovered one another and started to go at it. Like all the different conflicts he's had in his life, he's never quite won like he has won at the end of uh of life and death and that was meant to mirror the end of harbinger in which they didn't win in which it it's supposed to feel like they won because they outed harada i mean both books do the exact opposite thing uh the end of harbinger they win the day but they but they really feel like they lose the war they're scattered they've lost someone that they love they're emotionally profoundly deeply scarred and harada ultimately emerges um you know a different a different kind of aggressor uh so they don't yeah exactly exactly and then the end of uh life and death 
he appears to have lost because the whole world thinks he's dead. He's lost his organization. He's lost all his allies. He's anyone who's loved him has been put at arm's length. Um, he's all alone. He, he's basically subjugated his ego. Uh, but he's, he, he's the most powerful person in the world right now. So this is, these were the sort of ways in which the two books, you know, throughout the books, there's many ways in which they reflect one another's light. But that was one of the most clear ways is that their endings are diametrically opposed, but the same. See, that's interesting. Wait. And, and I hate to go against, uh, the guy who wrote the character. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, uh, to, to, to go with Travis's question, I, I always found the answer to that question to be less clear. Um, yes. I, th- I think oftentimes people want to see him as a villain because, like, people are dying, people are starving, yes. uh, he's, he's controlling people and people don't want to be controlled. Uh, but at the same time, like, in terms of, from what I understand his moral perspective to be, uh, I don't think for him good and bad is as clear cut as for the larger audience. And yeah. so he may not feel himself to be a bad guy, um, because, it's almost like he feels like maybe he's beyond a concept of good or bad, right? Um, and I think there's, there's, there's some, like, allegory to him kind of being godlike in, in life and death. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and we saw some of that before, but I think to me it wasn't as clear cut before where he still seemed like the antagonist of the story in some respects, uh, even through parts mm-hmm. of Imperium. But, but with life and death to me, that, almost faded away um, because I could kind of understand why he was in the place that he was at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, we intentionally um, wanted to create a, a character that was going to conflict the reader and like make the reader ask very difficult moral questions. Um, so yeah, in that regard, you know, you're, it's, it's great to disagree with me and I've even oscillated back and forth on it myself. Um, but he's, a, I, we have to agree on, we have to come to some substantial equal agreement on what the word villain means, Sure. but essentially he's a very, but he is a very flawed man. You know, he's, um, uh, and, and we have to ask ourselves if, if you're going to kill one person, uh, to, to create a, a perfect future, then this is automatically a morally complex question uh, in which human beings are going to fall on, you know, on both sides of that moral question. But unless you're absolutely certain that taking that life is going to create a better humanity, that that person will have died for a larger purpose, unless you're certain you're going to succeed, then it becomes, you know, if you're uncertain at all, it becomes a far less morally complex question for me and way more uh, about you know the death of one is not well you know is is not the is not not morally sound like you can't I, in my opinion sure. and so you know so that's kind of where where I fall on his his villainy but villainy is a word that I I, I find very difficult to use yeah. you know I would never I would never call him a villain. Or P, you know, or Peter Hero. Faith is the closest thing to heroics, uh, or Sunlight on Snow is the closest thing to heroics that I could probably have ever gotten in any of my work. And um, 
and even then, you know, um, Faith is a pretty flawed person. Uh, uh, Sunlight on Snow is not. <laughs> uh, he's not a flaw. It's sorry. I hate to. I don't mean to genderize him. It's not a flaw. <laughs> but you know, when when sunlight on snow does flawed things, it's generally due to uh, others programming him. Well, and and to kind of go back to the point that you made before about character centric stories. Uh, yeah, I think I think certain types of stories are popular because you do have this fight between good and evil. Whereas mm-hmm. I think what's interesting to me in this book is that there is that but ultimately you can't you can't stereotype any of these characters right like i i agree faith is probably the closest to a hero um mm-hmm. but like characters that are purely hero- heroic are not interesting right mm. because people are not purely good or purely bad you're a mix of all these things and and to have somebody that's like purely good like okay maybe it's something cool that you want to maybe achieve some of those qualities, right? Uh, you like the mm-hmm. character because you can't be that way. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so you, you relate in that sense. Uh, but, but I think ultimately the ones that are, are a little more mixed end up being more interesting, like Toyo Harada or, you know, Sunlight mm-hmm. and Snow is fascinating. Uh, and he's not even a yeah. person. It, it's not even a person. Yeah. I mean, I like to think it's a person, but yes, I'm with you. I see. I, I know he. He. It, fuck! I did it again. I know. <laughs> that it, um, I know that it very much like uh, presses the definition of what a person is. There you but go. I, I totally hear what you're saying. Look, you know, there's like there's two two modes of storytelling. Uh, I think in this regard, one is the storytelling that that holds a mirror up to the world, and that the the storyteller tries their best to use their observational powers to explore what they see the the spirit and soul of the world to be. And then there's kind of the type of storytelling that relies heavily on on showing a world or people or a character in the light that they wish it to be. So like Superman, which is, you know, a character that I really love. So when you were saying that purely good characters are um are not interesting i would argue that uh you know there's some really truly great superman stories it's harder to write but they exist yes and i and and uh superman can be a very beautiful character because that's a character that we look to that we find aspiration in i have a harder time uh writing that kind of story um because uh because i am a little bit more i guess in in the world a little bit and i i am a little distrustful of of people who would uh who would thrive on our aspirational needs for them you know i mean that's how cults are born you know which which toyo harada is we've all we flirted from the very beginning with the notion of him as a cult leader right a kind of that kind of whatever it is humanity has to follow something uh a person like like toyo so I'm definitely in this camp for the most part throughout my career of um, wanting to use my fiction, even though it's fantastical and even, uh, you know, as a mirror for our society. But I still think there's good and evil, you know, in 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 the entire Harbinger slash Imperium run in the whole Psyot cycle, the evil is really the thing in humanity that gives its oppressive institutions power it's not a personified evil it's not an an evil you know one character doesn't get to represent it but through it all 
the Harbinger kids are fighting institutions um, that are run by Toya Harada. And then we flip the switch and we realize that Toya Harada is fighting the entire global economic institution. The very idea that you would say, I'm going to feed every person on earth and end war, and that that would actually cause more war and more conflict to say that, uh, which, you know, um, which is what happens throughout the course of Imperium, I think shows us there is a kind of evil, but the evil is us. <laughs> it's in us. It's our inability to love one another so purely that we make sure that we can all eat or we make sure that we all have a roof over our head or we make sure that we all have health care. So I think that's the evil yeah. that is present in, in the work. So you, you mentioned <laughs> <laughs> truth bomb. Where's my bell? There he goes. Dinner's ready. <laughs> you uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, you know if on the, the the topic of making the moral choice that that Toyo is making if if one person dies as a result uh, the the type of moral dilemma that arises out of that and I'm curious based on what you put into life and death with Einstein for example if mm. if Toyo can and I'm assuming this is how it worked. Uh, he projected his mind through time into another mind, right? It's not like – it's not time travel. It's just like a, a consciousness connection. Uh, wouldn't he be able to make that same connection to someone in the future um, and and determine the outcome of his actions based on that connection? So uh, if I understand your, your question correctly uh, – uh, this is how I perceive what happened with Albert Einstein. Uh, first of all, Harada was in general proximal space, so he was like outside his hospital window. So he was in the same time space as, as, um, Einstein. Then he makes this mental link. Then he uses Einstein's theories of perception of time dilation to slow down the moment that they spend in together. But everything that's happening inside of Albert Einstein's or their connection, their mutual connection is sort of a bleed over of Harada's consciousness and Einstein's consciousness. So there's not actual time travel happening there. There's there's Einstein's memories and Harada's memories and then sort of a dreamscape that kind of gets created as Einstein begins to become, uh, uh, uh you know, biologically, uh, compromised because he's dying. And also he's probably on a shit ton of meds. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's no, I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding the question and feel free to elaborate, but there's no actual time travel. There's no future being seen. There's only what the two men know. Uh, in their conscious and unconscious minds in that moment. However, having said that, they can travel freely through each other's memories, or at least Harada can travel freely through Einstein's memories. Uh, but, um, yeah, but there's no, but he can't really see the future. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I'll clarify. Uh, I wasn't yeah, implying. I yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't implying time travel at all. Um, I understood oh, the. I, I understood the psychic connection, uh, but yes. for some reason, I had it in my mind that that event that is happening is happening kind of like yeah. outside of space time, and and Harada's like reaching into that consciousness. This I don't know if I can explain this correctly, but he's like reaching 
through time. There's no time travel. Any more drugs? Uh, yes. Late, <laughs> later. Later. Um, he, he, his consciousness is kind of reaching through this link in time. Not that there's an uh-huh. actual time travel happening. Uh-huh. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know if I'm still explaining it. I mean, I, I, I'm sure it's me. I'm sure I'm being dense. But I think that um, uh, the only – you know, that basically they had that whole experience in a, in a few very condensed moments, right, as Einstein's yeah. body failed him. Right, right, right. Uh, and, and the elongation of time is Harada utilizing, right, the uh, perceptions of time that are part of Einstein's own theories, yeah, see, I, I got that. I think I think the issue is yeah. I, I I think I misread that piece because uh-huh. I, I think I read it as he is there in the present, and somehow in the moment that Einstein is dying in the past and Toya being there in the present, their consciousness get connected. But that's not the case. They're there oh, physically uh-huh. in the same time. I just fucked you up then. I didn't write it. Yeah. The the way the story is supposed to be, and I certainly don't want to disabuse you of any concepts that make it seem cooler than it actually is. (laughs) So if if your idea is better than mine, then feel free to keep believing it. But my intention was that Einstein is passing away and Harada arrives in, in very close proximal space to Einstein. And then they do a mind link for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then and then he like slows down the perception of time for both of them, so they can spend some time together as the body dies, and that's basically it. Yep, yep. Now, now yeah. we're good. It's like psychological time dilation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you slow because Harada's mind is like a computer, and it can multitask and yes. like it processes faster than everybody else. So Einstein living inside that experiences that as a slowdown. Right. right exactly. And, and it's so, very similar to what Livewire goes through when she enters into Sunlight on Snow's mind in right. the last story. Yeah, she experiences time dilation because his processing speed is so fast. Right now, now I get it. Yeah, now I get it. I just I misread w- when that piece of the story was happening. Yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, but, uh, but sorry, I love I, I love that whole sequence though. By the way, so e- even through I, that, it was awesome. Is it less cool now? No, it's just as cool. <laughs> okay, good. No, it's just the it, equal amount of cool, just the same. We didn't g- gain or lose cool. Well, you we know, just... when, when you start like, exploring these like conscious states, you got me. Yes. Yes, it's nice. You awesome. know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, regardless. Yeah. <laughs> well, believe whatever you want. Of that <laughs> it's in your hands now. It's out of my hands and in yours. It's not in my hands. It's in somebody's hands. That poor soul. <laughs> So can I uh, segue to talking about Sunlight on Snow briefly? Yeah, I love to talk about Sunlight on Snow. Yeah. Okay, so I just, I mean, A, I like the idea that you kind of established earlier that, like, he is the most human character, Mm -hmm. uh, like, in this whole cast. And I wonder if that in itself is kind of a commentary on humanity, like, like... We're not able to live up to our um, kind of highest ideals. Right. You know, and it, it takes something, it's like something that is not human to actually uh, achieve that. Um, I also wanted to ask, I guess, about um, the kind of soul music motif. Uh-huh. 
that runs through and and like my read on that and whether it's it's totally off based or not is uh, you know like for you know right or wrong all the artists that SOS name drops yes through the series are black yes yes they are and so they come from an experience of you know oppression at least in this country yes like does that inform SOS like like is that part of what speaks to him is you know like I mean he himself is in shackles okay this is an awesome this is awesome so I have not I don't think I've made this connection so let's do this live right here and right now with this yeah (laughs) yeah um Motown in soul music the music that uh sunlight on snow is you know that speaks to it to its soul for lack of a better term is obviously sort of uh you know like this a pioneering moment in the african american cry for equality and freedom so you have hundreds of years of uh field hollering and slave songs that become you know that become the blues that get infused into jazz and that eventually emerge as soul music and Motown. So the, the cry of uh, the demand for freedom and equality and to be viewed as a human being is so deeply ensconced in that music and gives it such a profound beauty. And I would argue is the defining trait of the American soul. Uh, and I don't mean just soul music, but I mean the soul of America is that is the, the African American um, demand for freedom and equality. And, and, and that's why that music resonates with us so deeply and so profoundly. And is still such a part of the DNA of all American music. And I think that um, I unconsciously, because I love that music and because it speaks so deeply to me and because as a young boy, I was very much exposed to that music. It was the favorite music of my family. It was a soul train came on after cartoons every Saturday morning. I loved soul train. I will never, ever, ever forget Stevie wonder playing superstitious on uh, Sesame street live. It blew my top of my fucking head open when I saw that. And, uh, and so I think that I just casually as most creative choices get made, I casually infused this, music into the character uh of sunlight on snow but at the same time all the themes that you're talking about the the repression the cry for freedom the demand for equality the demand to be perceived as as a as a human being uh that is what we love that's that is the spirit of that music that is what we're all responding to when we hear it that is the the highest ideal of that music and that is the highest ideal of sunlight on snow and i do think in retrospect uh, in light of your question that there must have been some sort of unconscious connectivity made between those two concepts because i could not tell you why uh, it became important to me that Sunlight on Snow loved soul music. But I can tell you that the minute the idea dawned on me, I got super excited about it without completely understanding why. So I think, you know, you've helped me unpack that quite a bit, which yes. I think is great. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Follow up question then. Yes. Uh, how does SOS feel about rap music? <laughs> oh, I think that he You're hasn't been music, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he would be. I, honestly, I think SOS would love all music. Honestly, I mean, I think that um, it's just about in in the context of the story, not in the context of what we are talking about now, which is like the big thematics I meant to build into it. But in the context of the narrative, that's what he was exposed to, right? He was exposed. The first music he was exposed to was soul music from, uh, I forget her name, the Vine operative who he saved her life in Imperium. And, and, um, and so he, you know, I kind of, we never got to really deal with it. I always wanted to deal more with his love for soul music. Like I always wanted to have this thing where he would be doing missions for Harada, but we would be, he would be rapidly processing the entire Motown library. You know what I mean? Like, just like, like at rapid speeds. Um, but I think that the idea of music is exciting to it, to, 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 to Sunlight on Snow, to SOS. I think the, the mathematic, the combination of mathematics and organics that music represents, I think is probably a pretty exciting idea, idea to Sunlight on Snow. So I think it would, it, it would like all music. I just think it locked into, to soul music. And don't forget in or I don't I'm not sure if you guys have read it, but in Fall of Harbinger, uh, when we see how how Sunlight on Snow has essentially turned into a much larger collective artificial intelligence called the SOS uh, perspective node, um, they are all individually named themselves after Motown artists. Yeah. So there's an ambassador, Aretha Franklin and. Um, we'll so, pick it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of them, I think. Or, 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 or you know, there is in my head, at least. I don't know how many made the page. <laughs> oh, I thought Travis had more follow up. No, that was it. That, that on the SOS uh, stuff. That's uh, that's my chuck on that. Okay. That's good, man. I mean, I think that it's absolutely it's absolutely part of it. Uh, but I but I wish I could say it was conscious. I think it's an unconscious. I think I'm always unconsciously trying to tell the story of human dignity and soul music uh is part of many of the musical art forms that are all about human dignity you know to to follow up on travis's first question i don't even know if we we got around to that bit of the question oh Uh, but uh you know sos is a robot we'll say Sure. Uh, a little more maybe but yeah. when when you created that character did did you make a conscious choice of making him a robot to explore certain aspects of humanity that you couldn't explore with some of the other characters yeah i wanted to exactly i wanted to well first of all i was always super excited by the by the notion that the um the general ai um in a mobile housing body <laughs> would would be the most humane character was very exciting to me. And honestly, this is another example of you not quite having fully locked into your characters yet. Uh, if you read the very first Imperium issue, I don't think you're reading the actual sunlight on snow. You're reading with me looking for sunlight on snow. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, the, the things that he says, the things that he does, I'm like calling out into the wilderness, looking for this, this person and I'm, uh, I keep genderizing him too, and I don't mean to. I did it. I, God damn it. It's crazy how that language, <laughs> that language is built into my old man brain. But, um, 
you know, I, I always knew that he was supposed to, oh, fuck, that it was supposed to be the most humane of, of all the characters. Uh, but I had to kind of get there too. And I had to get SOS's, SOS had to become an, a separate entity. And that took a few issues, but wait, I'm also totally meandering around the question all over again. The original, what was the original question? Something well, about- a comment on humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And absolutely, but also a comment on artificial intelligence and technology. Uh, I, I feel like um, it's a little bit harder now because I too am beginning to feel the weight of how social media platforms and technology have really, really failed the species. But I wanted to talk about how I believe the highest form of information processing would lead to an ethical view not that that was my next question actually so yes 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 exactly not to a uh skynet kills all human beings like i was so tired of that narrative of like the ai is coming you know the robots are coming uh, uh, whereas it just sort of i could not shake this feeling that if we if we separated ourselves from our most base instincts and pursued a, a uh, the most the purest form of highest intellect which is just crunching as much certified data as we can and putting it into a model of the world that that it's not a coldness or cruelty that emerged that it would be ethics that would emerge because i believe i foundationally believe that an ethical uh world model is the most efficient world model <laughs> that you will actually that you will that it's profitable to be ethical, that it's, you know, and I know that the world doesn't seem to be operating that way, but I don't think we've ever really given um, uh, pure humanism a chance. But I think that ultimately societies, we know for a fact that biological societies succeed on cooperation, not on violence. We know for a fact, you know, there's all kinds of indicators to suggest to us that higher intellect leads to higher uh, ethical and moral uh, models of the world. So that's what I wanted this to be about. And there's a, like, if I could just bloviate for one more second. Yeah, You're I mean, bloviating. I, yes. I was bloviating. I think that, uh, I'm not sure it's the best way to make money, but I, it's the best way to be a profitable society. We may have different, there you I mean, go, there I, you go. <laughs> they may not be connected, profitability and money in my mind. But, um, yeah, yeah, okay. I think of the last thing I mentioned though was that there's this Australian biologist named Jeremy Griffith, and he uh, has this thing called the love indoctrination, and he believes that uh, that the the mother nurturing the child uh, it was how morality and ethics emerged in the human mind, um, and and he believes that this this nurturing, uh, this love indoctrination caused a biological change in us. Um, uh, through evolution, you know, through evolution, and that we eventually begin to emerge uh, with a moral mind. And I said it way better last time before the internet cut us off. But uh, <laughs> but I was thinking a lot about his theories um, on love indoctrination and my own personal kind of distaste for anti-technology science fiction uh, in general, and also. It's not even about what I believe. It's just an interesting, like, little story twist. Like, we just never see, we never see the good robot. 
<laughs> you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah, and I think there's a there's a little resurgence of that. I mean, I I don't get me wrong. I love Terminator. Um, sure. Oh well, yeah. Obviously, but, yeah. but you're but you're right. It seems like as a species, regardless of our our failings, uh, we've gotten to the place where we're at because we know how to communicate. We know how to help each other out ultimately, even if it doesn't seem yeah. that way nowadays, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. We're we're biologically programmed to live in a tribe and to yeah. to help the tribe out. And and when you have, you know, a, a technology come in like, oh Sky is gonna kill us or this, that or the other, um it seems kind of counterintuitive. It's almost like going back to the point with uh like Comic Gay, for example, right? Where you have this like Group that is just is not used to being in a world with this in place and yes. doesn't know how to react to it. Uh, yeah. But but I do see a resurgence of that now. You know, with like Elon Musk and a bunch of other guys saying, you know, the AI, the AI is going to get us. And and I yes, wonder, like, exactly. what would the AI actually get us? Like, why would the AI care? Right? I, I don't know if I see because it. Because we, we subjugate the AI, dude. Well, but, all right. So, the I, I, AI overthrows us because we treat it like a slave. So, I mean, there's, there's stories where the AI kind of enslaves humanity, but because ultimately the directive is to protect humanity, right? And because we mm-hmm. don't know how to protect ourselves, the AI finds the best solution to do that. Um, now, we could see that as a bad thing. Maybe this is a tell you a thing too. The AI doesn't see it as a bad thing, right? Because it's following the directive. Um, but I think people are kind of scared of that, of not being in control. And, and to go, you know, we we're talking about the, the profitability thing. Um, you know, a, a lot of the folks developing really strong AI now are obviously large multinational corporations. And, mm-hmm. and you do wonder if, if the AI gets to a point where it could be conscious, like SOS, uh, would its motivation be the betterment of the institution that created it? Or would, would it be able to see beyond that, right? Because a lot of the AIs aren't – you're not going to see general artificial intelligence anytime soon, I don't think, because a lot of the right. AI is programmed by people, and so inherently you program your own human flaws into the AI, but but what if the AI is able to program itself and go beyond that, right? Like there was that uh, those two bots that Facebook had created that developed right. their own language uh, because human language is inefficient, and so they yeah, found yeah. a better way to communicate. Well, I think that this is exactly um, you know first of all the our models for AI are very much like singular artificially intelligent programs that are running with a specific pur- purpose what you know whether it's to win at jeopardy or play good chess or identify all the cats on the internet or whatever the fuck it is right so um this is it's very difficult to imagine one of the, uh the an ai like this kind of emerging and and making its own choices like you could really see how like if google ever if an artificially intelligent search engine really became a general ai you know that it would just like would it obsess on 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 finding all the cats on the internet would that be it's like would that be it's like moral and ethical compass is cats on the internet so uh because of all the searches we put in it over time would it have evolved in the same way human beings did where you know we are 
very problematic in our evolutionary uh, uh, tower that we're in because it's built of some very questionable intentions that we used to really need in the past. Will the AI have that same problem? Or will it be able to div- divorce itself from its original intentions? We sort of cheat with that, or, or maybe we're making an interesting statement with that with Sunlight on Snow because SOS was originally a medical robot. So uh, the ethics of saving a human life is part of the evolutionary chain of SOS coming into being. So we could argue that my point that I made that ethics is the highest form of intellect um, is not really in place, that Sunlight on Snow could have only ever become an ethical being because part of its... Uh, part of its evolution was this medical, you know, was being a medical bot. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I don't think I responded to your question, but I, I do feel that, I do feel that general AI is something very, very, very far in the future. Um, I don't think we're even remotely, you know, close to creating something like that. But I think that I, I, but I maintain philosophically that if you can separate uh, human instinct and fallibility from logic, uh, that what emerges is an ethical state of mind and that the human condition is a product of our instincts, which were forged, uh, for different circumstances than the modern world clash, our instincts clashing with our emerging moral consciousness, uh, which is relatively new. Uh, to the human species and the ethical idea. So, uh, you know, I think Sunlight on Snow speaks to that, that, that divergence between our instincts and our fallibility and our moral compass, our emerging moral compass. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It seems like uh, culture moves a lot faster than biology, right? So we have ah, a yeah, time keeping definitely. up. This is why we, you know, this is precisely why we're like looking to the robot for, because we don't, you know, we're sort of obsolete. We're really fortunate that our <laughs> brains evolve in certain ways. <clears throat> but this is why the most ideal Sunlight on Snow story for me that I would always would love to write is Sunlight on Snow runs for president. Because the notion of an artificial a, a GAI, a generally artificial intelligence uh, running for president, I think would be such a fascinating concept. Like would human beings accept it? Would you accept the idea? Imagine like Andrew Yang, but you know, even more, <laughs> even more like every piece of knowledge, every piece of data, the ability to crunch super data, the ability to make choices from a place of total dispassion, uh, and total anti-politic, but solely from a place of how many human beings will benefit from it. Like, uh, that's, that's such an interesting leadership model. And and human beings would be deeply, profoundly terrified of it. So. Yes, but doesn't that beg the question, though? The idea that it's like th- that speaks to a kind of an ethics that is greatest good for the the greatest amount of people, and uh-huh. like often that is kind of juxtaposed with, with situations where you have to like break eggs, you know? Yes, and you're. Yeah, you're like, exactly. yeah, well, you know, you were talking about earlier the idea that like one person needs to be sacrificed and that kind of uh, makes, you know, your moves, you know, I- invalid in a way ethically. 
But mm-hmm. if that one person saves a million people, you know, yeah. like the, you know, I, I don't know if you guys watch The Good Place. I, I watch The Good Place. And if there's anything I've taken away from that is that there are no answers in ethics because mm-hmm. it's all about your approach, you know? And if your approach rejects the idea that, that like, that, you know, the greatest good for the greatest people, like, the, the, that the ends can justify the means that you're kind of stuck. Right. But I think that, you know, if... What, I don't see Sunlight on Snow as an absolutist, though. You know, I, I think that part of, and this is what makes it a fictional character, because uh, it's a general AI that has, that can also, that, that doesn't just crunch data and make choices, but that can reason out different possibilities when there's variable outcomes of, of, uh, that are both equally good and bad. So, I think that ultimately that would be one of the the big philosophical explorations is how does a machine, how does a machine not become a uh, absolutist or, you know, um, yeah. So uh, an extremist, you know, how does a machine not say, okay, well, the data says I can save 10,000 people if we let these thousand die. Um, But that machine also has to take into account what, what will happen to society if you let these thousand people die? How many of their relatives will turn against what you represent in culture and society? How, how much down the line damage where they'll be, you know, when you, one thing that the 20th century taught us is that, uh, it's extremely rare when you recalibrate the politics of your nation with political violence that you succeed it's just it just doesn't work so well anymore political violence so these kinds of choices that you make um that's that complexity of choice is something that we would hopefully work into sunlight on snow um and that would be an interesting philosophical uh struggle in and of itself you know it's like how do you make those choices you can't just crunch big data you have to have a connectivity to to humanity as well and to the complexity of humanity. So that would all be really interesting stuff. I don't know how to make a comic book out of it. I don't know where the explosions come from and, uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, do you like, I, I was also very fascinated by the idea, your idea that like ethics, you know, it kind of an ethical framework is the most efficient because yeah. in a way that, that kind of seems to reject capitalism. And that yeah. gets me also to, this idea of, like, I feel like Harada very much kind of puts to the forefront this idea of post-scarcity. Like, if we can yeah. get past scarcity, does that, I mean, can we get past capitalism? Right. And can so, we get to that place? Yeah, I mean, I think Harada is an extremist. Uh, um, you know, if you're asking, like, what I believe are versus what Harada believes... I mean, I think Harada is operating from the factual framework that scarcity is a product of capitalist need, which is true. You know, you, you, you really don't have a supply, a functioning supply and demand 
system uh, unless you create scarcity. And that we ultimately right now, where our current population is, if we had a proper distribution of resources, that we would not have scarcity on the level that we have. And that scarcity is a, is a, uh, a man-made thing. Um, now, for true distribution of resources across the globe so that we could really impact scarcity, we would need some pretty big technological advances that we don't quite have at this point as a species. But we're also not struggling to to work on those advances. And that's sort of why Toya Harada uses big tech like a space elevator and this this notion of this prefab hospital that is, you know, a new smart hospital that would change the way uh, people uh, receive health care. That's why he invests in this big tech, because he knows there will have to be major tech changes for a recalibration and redistribution of resources. There would also have to be total freedom of movement for the people. So you'd have to really disregard the notion of borders and let people move freely, which is why in the very first Imperium issue that we we take great pains to show how human beings move through his future on these like trains, these super rapid trains that go like beneath the oceans and that move people freely from country to country. Because until you have total freedom of movement, you're also not going to overcome scarcity issues because so many people are geographically locked in places that have uh, like inherent uh, geographical scarcity issues. But, you know, Having said all that, Harada believes uh, that he can make those changes. He can eliminate the idea of nations or, or at least of complicated borders, and he can bring forth the tech that will allow for this stuff. So that's how it happens in story. Pers- and that's how Harada is an anti-capitalist, even though he's, he spent most of his life uh, inside the capitalist system. As me, myself, personally, I think that all these isms – like the 20th century was a moment in which we were so invested in our isms, right? We really fought capitalism versus communism, Catholicism versus, you know, whatever, whatever faith they were currently operating against, atheism, I guess. You know, this, this idea where we concretized these philosophical notions and we went to bat for them as if they were actual physical things, as if, if you pulled two legs out of our capitalist chair, we would all fall down and and you replaced them with socialism, but it's not the case. And we're moving into an era now where these, these, we, we have to let go of this idea that these systems are anything more than just malleable philosophical principles that can be interchangeable and reworked into a fluid society that uses capitalism for some things like say an alarm clock, I think you could probably – capitalism probably does produce the best alarm clock, but you don't use capitalism for other things, education, healthcare, things that primarily advance the species. I personally would throw art into that, but I know that that's – I know that that's, that's you know, not, not how everyone feels. So I think you know, there's – so I, I mean that's how I you – know, that's how I personally feel about all these isms, um, but Harada definitely uh, – Definitely supply and demand, as far as Harada is concerned, has got to end. He's got to disrupt supply and demand. That's the only way to disrupt scarcity. So, yeah. I like it. <laughs> Let's make that happen like- right now. I know. I know. <laughs> I know exactly. I'm not going to do it well, right in comic books. <laughs> 
the the interesting thing I think is like it you know obviously it's very difficult to blow up scarcity in our world. Yeah. But in the Valiant universe, it's quite easy. Honestly, like look at Centerpoint. You know, like right. if we had unlimited free energy, yes. Like that's why we have the holodeck in Star Trek, right? Yes. Like yes, it's exactly. like that's that's why Star Trek exists is because yes, if you have unlimited free energy, everything else becomes like attainable. Yes, that's right. Like exactly, including well, like like a, like a thing that just whatever they call it that makes other things. Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, first of all, I do want to say, like, hats off to the Star Trek thing. Uh, the Star Trek original series is the very first time in my life as a little boy watching it every day after school uh, that I was exposed to. Uh, they never call it post-scarcity uh, philosophy in Star Trek, but I later, as I began to read about economic philosophy, came across what post-scarcity was and realized that that's exactly what the Star Trek universe is, is a post-scarcity universe. So, uh, so huge hats off to Star Trek for being one of the only, certainly the only mainstream science fiction narratives to place ethics first and to really be at the cutting edge of this idea that money uh is 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 a meaningless construct that we basically invented so that uh, so that we could uh, aggregate power so hats off to star trek so yeah absolutely star trek is 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 the example by which i was operating on uh when i thought more and more about harada's post-scarcity universe but keep in mind because it's fiction i wanted there to be a struggle for it still and so you're right about the center point brain can deliver us um scalable infinite energy but to do so we must enslave a human being you must enslave that human mind so now we can no longer have this discussion solely on a pragmatic field now we must also have a moral discussion about it like we're enslaving a human being and there's and then there's technological difficulties like scaling it was always a problem you know for 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 the angela vessel so so yeah exactly i mean that in a in a big way imperium is my sort of masturbatory fantasy about exploring post scarcity and how we could achieve it and introducing these kind of science fiction elements because, uh, uh, well, one, because it's a comic book <laughs> and, and I wanted it to be cool. And two, because, you know, that's, that's part of what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to find reliable technological ways to overcome our scarcity issues, which probably will not include a human brain that can build a psychic bridge between dimensions. But it could. Yeah, man. I mean, sure. <laughs> uh, very good. Travis, you got anything else? Uh, I mean, I, I got a question. It's it's a little bit uh, dicey, but... I'm not you know, scared I'll, of you. Okay, okay, okay. Well, good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so uh, I remember, uh, Josh, reading uh, you, you did an AMA years ago. Oh, uh-huh. Probably more years ago than we want to think about how many years ago that was. I but. feel like that AMA, I like barked at somebody for using the term feminist uh, in a negative connotation and a bunch <laughs> of people piled on me. Eh, well, I mean, you know, feminism is great, but um, yeah. 
all for it. Yeah. So uh, my question, like one of my takeaways out of uh, the AMA was I feel kind of a passing reference to like, like I almost feel like you called it like the Peter Stanchek cycle or saga or like, like, like oh. that you had a plan for Peter specifically yes. and you, yes. you didn't get to tell that story. So let's yes. say it's not even our value universe, but a value universe. Yes. What, what's well, the Peter Stanchek story that you would like to tell? Okay. Or so would I'm have only, liked to tell? I'm only going to discuss it in broad strokes because for one thing, you know, at that time of that AMA, I remember Raffer was doing, it was like just starting his run and I didn't feel it was cool uh, or appropriate for me to be like dropping, you know, what I would do because they belong to him now. And I, I just didn't, that just didn't seem like good etiquette between creators. <laughs> um, so I'm still going to operate on that principle that someday another writer is going to come on board and it's not super ethical or, or not, you know, etiquette for me, good etiquette for me to, to, um, to tell too much about what my plans were. Also, I might cannibalize those plans and use them for other characters in the future. So, but I will say in broad strokes, something that frustrated me and still remains frustrating to me. And I hope that future writers of Peter Stanchek will correct is that I feel that we had put Peter on a, um, uh, on a redemption path. And I do think Peter got better and better throughout. Peter does something terrible. And, you know, there's been endless discussions as to whether we made the right choice or not. But Peter does something terrible in the very first issue of Harbinger. And we knew it was terrible. We talked a lot about it. And we ultimately decided, for for better or for worse, and I honestly don't know which anymore, uh, that we were going to go with making Peter make this horrible choice. And then we were going to send him on this redemption path. <laughs> because we felt like that choice was an honest choice that a young person who was as psychologically damaged as Peter would make. So uh, now whether comics is the right place for us to explore hard realizations about damaged people, I don't know. But that's what we did. So then, uh, so then I thought throughout my series that we made him a better and better person. And then when Flamingo dies, he – he really falls back and he really kind of loses his shit for a little bit. So the, the, the problem I think has been that, that the company or that the editors editorial or that future or other writers, uh, I don't know who, um, was involved in these choices, but that they kept him at this low self-absorbed ebb. That was supposed to just be a, a moment, a post-death moment that he would allow him to rise even higher. And the way that I really tried to telegraph that to future writers was in Fall of Harbinger by showing him as an extremely um, healthy individual who was now literally, you know, known all over the planet as, as a leader and as a family person who makes the ultimate choice to sacrifice himself in the, the last fight against t the Toya Harada mind. And I hope that that would be a path that other writers could then come in and be like, oh, from this point forward, Peter's life is a ramp towards ethical, heroic goodness, not a wallow in your, you know, in your, your bullshit. But I think they kept 
keeping him low. They kept keeping him unlikable. They kept keeping him all this stuff that we really were trying to to disregard and to make him grow out of. And so, you know, my original harbinger pitch, only in broad strokes, no details, was that Peter is at really the lowest that we've seen him. Uh, and and he is caught. He's not out in space. He's like causing harm uh, in a way that I won't say. And uh, but not not really. He's not a bad guy or anything. And then eventually the team kind of all comes back together and basically to to confront him and to to make him become his best self. And that then he was going to and then he would start. And he would basically take over the Harbinger Foundation from Toya Harada and begin uh, and begin activating psyops in a, in a very ethical, controlled manner. And that in that we would, in just a few issues, we would really get the redemption from Peter that we wanted. But yeah, yeah. So the the intention was that he was going to end up in the same with the same responsibilities in the same place as Toya Harada was. And uh, running the foundation and our, our foundation-like organization, where he was activating and protecting psyots, and that he was going to have to deal with all the ethical implications and all of those of those responsibilities, and that he was going to become an increasingly better, more likable person. And I really hope that a Valiant takes that path, and and. And Peter can be a truly great hero in their universe, but we have to get past this like James Dean wallowing in his own self bullshit kind of thing. Um, That's yeah. dope, man. Yeah, I agree. That's that is that is so dope, and it's got that kind of cyclical yeah thing that is so appealing. Yeah, I mean, and I think that it. Um, you know, yeah, that's that's really what I want to see. I, I mean, I there's some great writers there now, and I, I really like a lot of. The, I've met a lot of them, and I really like them. And I just want to say that I maybe I've seen some storytelling where people get activated uh, without the the Saya activating them, taking on the full weight of the ethical complications of turning of giving all this power to a person. And I would just like it if future writers at Valiant really make that a part of their storytelling. The ethical complications of assigning power to, to, to an individual. And um, I think that's what I really wanted to do with Peter a lot was just really put him in, in a position of deep, profound responsibility and watch him emerge as a truly great leader uh, and a good person. That's what I wanted to do. That was always the intention. And I never really got to, Got to get there. Awesome. I think, uh, I think, I think we should wrap up, Travis. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good way to that's go. A, that's it. a good place to go. Uh, Josh, you yes. are, the, you are the best, quite literally. Thanks, man. You, oh, you, you really thanks. are. I think, uh, I think I can speak for, for Travis and, and a lot of folks, uh, that you, you have something that, I don't know, man, it, it really inspires you to, to want to read better comics. Because nice. I, I feel like when you read a Josh Dysart comic, uh, you can't read anything else until maybe the next day or the next week. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, man. I, you know, I, there's a lot of really, really, really great comic book writers out there. So I'm just doing my best and trying to, trying to tell, uh, exciting, fun stories, but also that are engaging to me 
and I feel very engaged by the world. So I, I, I try to walk a line. But I really appreciate you guys reading. And look, uh, I do want to say, uh, for anyone who hasn't read it, I do have a, a graphic novel that came out earlier this year called Goodnight Paradise. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's about homeless culture in Venice Beach, California, but it's also a murder mystery, so you're not going to get preached at or anything. But I, I am really, really proud of it. It's probably my most personal work because I lived in Venice Beach for 17 years, and I was very active with the homeless community there. And everything that happens in that book is um, inspired by actual events uh, that I either heard about or witnessed myself. And um, so I hope that people seek it out. Uh, you can buy it, you know, wherever you buy comic books, good night paradise. Um, and, you know, and also look for a big announcement early next year from myself and maybe some other people that you guys really love, because I think we're, we're going to emerge, uh, out of the darkness pretty soon with some, fucking really kick-ass comic books like big kick-ass comics so keep an eye out uh you know i've been i've been sounds like a bad idea (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah exactly new character bad idea idea, man yeah exactly Uh, i've I've been waiting for something to come out for a while i was talking to one certain person and he's like man i I think i might go to c2e2 and maybe announce something and uh-huh. uh and then he couldn't go because there was i think they were still filming um and and nothing came out of that but i, I we're all waiting I, I can't wait for all these bad ideas yeah exactly it's gonna be <laughs> great man and uh and we hope that everybody who really supported us and supported Valiant and really made it feel like a family uh, instead of a business. I hope that, you know, all of you uh, give us a shot when we re- reemerge. So. Yeah. No, I agree. I think a, a lot of folks feel that way. Uh, so it's it's nice. It's nice. Yeah, it uh, is nice. Uh, very few companies have that family feel. I've been fortunate enough that we we have a good relationship with Aftershock and uh, like Vault Comics, for example. Yeah, and and yeah. they they have a similar feel as well. So, I uh, can't wait, can't wait. Yeah, yeah, man. All right, yeah, let's I'm wrap just up. Gonna co-sign that we all love you, Josh. <laughs> man, I, I I love the love. Thank you so much. I love you guys too. Um, it's nice to be loved. It really is. And and thank you for reading the comics. And uh, you know, if it wasn't for you guys, I I would. Who knows what I'd be doing? The only thing I, only real job I ever had was working in bookstores, and those are obsolete now. So I'd be <laughs> fucked without comics. hand jobs. Hand jobs. That's what I would be doing. Hey, you know when I go to Barnes and Noble, they're pretty packed, man. Are right. they, you still have a Barnes and Noble? Oh, like, we have like three. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and we have uh, what's the other one? Uh, first and Charles, second and Charles. Nice. So, yeah, we have one of those. I would two. love to see the the rebirth of the bookstore, man. I love bookstores. I've been kind of leaning that way. I used to get all my books on Amazon, and now I'm yeah. just like, eh, Amazon's kind of uh, iffy, so let me just go to the bookstore. Yeah, yeah, Amazon's dodgy, man. <laughs> Don't give them money. <laughs> like they They're not working for our common good. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Josh. You, you are the best. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. This was a blast. Thanks again to Josh Darstar for uh, spending the time. I mean, we, we talked for... Two hours and 45 minutes. I cut out a chunk of it. Uh, if you could tell also by the audio, we had some, uh, dropout issues on Skype, but fortunately we got through it. I hope I made the audio cohesive enough for you to enjoy. And I hope you listen to the whole thing because it was, we had a blast. We had an absolute blast. One of my 
favorite conversations. I haven't had a chance to talk to Josh in several years, so uh, it was really great to spend the time with him. Uh, thank you to Travis for uh, getting all that set up. I haven't had much time to do it, but uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We have some more stuff coming up. I'm working on some great stuff coming up in the next month or two in terms of uh, getting some more creators on the show. So thanks to Greg, of course, for always setting that up for us. Uh, Greg, you are... Uh, you can't be the best, but you can be number two behind Josh Dysart. And I'd say that's pretty damn good. Uh, thanks again for listening. Of course, you can find us on Twitter. Travis is at The Great Magnet. Dewan was out this week, but you can find him on Twitter at Collect Valiant. I am a geek mind, and the show is at Valiant underscore central. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving if you're in the U.S. And we'll be back with a brand new episode next week.